Hello, and welcome back to the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. I'm Lisa Tang. And I'm Sabrina Douglas. We have something special planned for the last two episodes of this season. Lisa taught a nutrition communication course this past fall, and the students had the opportunity to create a podcast on a nutrition topic. And something super fun, Sabrina was the teaching assistant for the course. So Sabrina, we are a dynamic team both here and in the classroom. We turned this assignment into a bit of a challenge in that the winning podcast would be aired on the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. Today, we're bringing you the first two winning episodes back to back. The first of these two episodes is focused on sugar intake and adolescents, and the next episode will take a deep dive into sugar intake and younger children. And as a sneak peek, two weeks from now, we'll have two super interesting episodes focused on reducing sodium intake for the whole family and some of the recent research related to alcohol and teenagers. So without further ado, let's dive into the first episode. teenagers, sugary beverage consumption has risen substantially in recent years, and with it, we're seeing a rise in type 2 diabetes and obesity among young people. Our goal here today is giving parents the tools and knowledge they need to set their kids up for success. Today, we're very lucky to have Stefania Palmieri joining us. She's been a registered dietitian for nearly 10 years, and her non-diet approach focuses on nourishing the body and building a lifelong healthy relationship with food. Welcome, Stefania. I'm very happy to have you here to discuss why teenagers are drinking so much sugar and what we can do to intervene. So to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Thanks, Vanessa. And happy to chat with you this morning about sugary drinks and adolescents. It's definitely a hot topic in the health community. Um, so just a little bit more information about myself. As you mentioned, I am a dietitian for nearly 10 years in the field now. And I've worked across a number of different areas of practice, whether it was corporate care, um, inpatient care to some degree, outpatient seniors programs, and where I currently am at is actually in two different roles. So I work with a pediatric obesity program in a hospital centered out of Scarborough in Toronto. Um, and I also run my private practice virtually. So a lot of the families that I deal with are actually these kids and teens that are struggling with sugary beverage consumption and struggling with how that's impacting their overall health. It sounds like you have a lot of experience that's very pertinent to the issue. And mm. I just want to start off by asking, so everyone's drinking more sugar these days across all age groups, but why do you think that this is such an issue for teenagers in particular? I, I think, you know what, it's not even just um, with adolescents per se. I think it's uh, across the board, across the lifespan issue. I think sugary t- drinks taste good. Sugar tastes good. And that's just an instinctive part of how the human brain is wired, how our palate is wired. They taste good um, and they're easily accessible. So I think for... Um, I guess adolescents looking to fit in maybe with friends and finally getting their more, they're having more independence in terms of access Mm -hmm. to money, spending on food, right? Like this is something that's really exciting and it tastes good. So it's, I would think a pretty easy decision for them to go for those kinds of beverages. Mm -hmm. Right. So you mentioned friends and do you think that vulnerability to peer pressure has a role? I think so. I think even in with families that I work with and adolescents that I work with, a lot of their habits are built around routines, 
with their friends. So whether it's being out on the weekend or their first part-time job, for example, I have some clients that their first job is at a McDonald's and they get discounts on beverages and fountain drinks, right? Or I think actually they get unlimited refills. So there's things as part of their environment that are promoting those drinks. And I don't know about you, but I often see it, you know, kind of driving home in the after school period, puddles of teens outside of bus stops waiting for their ride home. And they've all had, you know, a drink or a dessert purchase from a Tim Hortons or a convenience store. So absolutely, there is something about the, I guess, peer relationships that can drive that behavior. Obviously, we're trying to help parents and give them some tips on how to help their kids consume less. But do you, uh, given that kids spend such a large portion of their time away from home, usually at school, where where do you think the issue really stems from at home or school? Or work? So to be honest, I would think it is more of a home issue. So there was one um, study done, I believe it was back in 2018, the Compass study. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was looking at sugar-sweetened beverages in adolescents in Ontario and Alberta. And what they found was that a lot of the beverages are happening off-site. So on weekends and with peers, it's not necessarily happening in the school setting. And so I don't know that it's a school issue. I think we've put in policies in place to limit what cafeterias can serve, vending machine access, right? Like what is available to them in that immediate proximity, but then when they're off campus, that's kind of beyond the school's control. So I kind of look at adolescent you know, that time span in their life in two different divisions. So there's kind of early adolescents, 13, 14 year olds that still might have some influence from parents in terms of access to money, control over food. And then I'm looking at adolescents as in 15 and older, where there is a little bit less of that control and it's more of a partnership with parents. So when I'm catering my education more towards that younger adolescence, What I often reinforce is that division of responsibility. So there's a framework from Ellen Satter, who's a dietitian in the States, and her framework states, you know, in any feeding dynamic, the parents or caregivers are always responsible for what, when, and where the food is offered. And the child or teen's decision is basically, do I eat and how much do I eat from what I'm served? So for the younger teen population, I do reinforce to parents that ultimately how we help our teens is for them to take control and support them, whether it's not having them in the house, whether it's limiting access to disposable income. You know, like a lot of our teens will ask parents for lunch money. Maybe it's about giving less lunch money. Maybe it's about only giving lunch money on certain days and the agreement on the other days is you pack from home with a bottle of water, right? Now with the older teens, that's a bit harder to do because they do have disposable income on their own. They get birthday money, they have money probably from allowances and it is harder to tell a 17 year old, well, you can't spend what you've earned. So I think that becomes more of a partnership with parents. It's almost like I look at it like you're taking the training wheels off. You know, you've tried to help to get them to that point in terms of healthy eating behaviors. And now you're coaching them on how to figure it out themselves. So it is about having discussions around maybe substitute beverages or offering to purchase beverages inside of the house that, you know, they prefer more than a sweetened drink, like an unflavored sparkling water. So that would be a good example. Yeah, you seem to have touched a lot of uh, potential solutions to the problem. So we can segue into that now. Given escalated body image issues during this period of life, how can we discourage people from overconsuming sugar using a non-diet, non-judgmental approach? Right. So again, I reinforce in that similar scenario, the division of responsibility applies regardless of size, right? Like this is any feeding dynamic 
between parent and child or within families. The parent is always, or the guardian, I should say, guardian, caregiver, whether it's grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, daycare, right? You are always the decider of what, when, and where the food is offered. Extracurricular programs, they should be the deciders of, do we allow this in? So that's a non-weight-based approach. The other way that I reinforce it is referring just to guidelines. So a lot of families, I've heard them say quite commonly, well, I have to restrict juice and chocolate milk for my child because we're worried about his weight, but I still need it in the house for the younger one who needs to gain weight. And so that's where I try to challenge those ideas to say, well, it's not about weight. You know, the, the World Health Organization's limit for added sugars in terms of what they see impacts health is irrespective of size. It's 25 grams of sugar for adults, right? And I would say even late adolescents across the board. So sometimes reiterating it, that way to families seems to stick a bit more of, okay, this isn't about calories. It's not about weight loss. It's about that's the tipping point before we start to see negative health outcomes. So that sort of segues into my next question about what the role of parental modeling is here. I mean, how much do parents have to take it upon themselves to learn about the issue and to not be seen drinking sugary drinks in front of their kids? A hundred percent. I'm definitely a big advocate for that. And I think one of the tricky things in family dynamics is, you know, I've had conversations with parents saying, well, why, why do I have to stop drinking what I like? They, they should have more self-control. They should know this isn't good for their body. When I was their age, you know, there's, there's a number of different reasons. So making change trickle down to an adolescent client or patient also targets the, the parent and addressing their health beliefs and addressing their motivation to change. Sometimes if they are quite resistant to changing their beverage consumption, then what I do ask them to do as a compromise is at least to do it away from their teen. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, I've had parents where they really love having their soda or their Gatorade or whatever the case is. And I say, you know, I understand for you, for your personal health, that's not something you're ready to change right now. But for the sake of your child, can you please do that at work? Can you do it in the car on the way home? Mm -hmm. Can you have it with your lunch away from your teen? Um, And really try and keep that home environment really, really supportive so that they have a chance to make their own health decisions later on in life. You know, if they choose as adults to eventually have a Gatorade or a soda, that's, that's then on them. But right now, like, let's really prime it so that they stand a chance to having healthy habits now. Right. So, uh, my next question is, is having a sugar-free household really the best option? Is that something that parents should hold themselves to, or will kids just seek it elsewhere if it's completely banned? I think it's a bit of both. Like I do still agree that not having them in the house is the best way to ensure that there are healthier options available. So for a lot of families that I've worked with, they tell me that, you know, when they've made substitutions, let's say they've substituted out juice for a flavored sparkling water, you know, there might be a little bit of pushback initially or some comments of, you know, where's the juice mom or why didn't you buy this dad? But at the end of it, then they just take on that new behavior because it's there. So I am still a big advocate for that. Um, That said, I do agree with you. I think if it's too strict, if it's pushed in a um, calorie-based framework or a weight-based framework, I think a lot of teens will rebel when they have access to their money. So what I usually suggest to families is try building in, let's say, treat days through the week. You know, a couple times a week, let's say a Friday, Saturday night, so that teens are aware it's not that you have to be at zero grams of sugar always in this ideal of, you know, 
quote unquote, clean eating and perfection. It's most of the time we can't have these because they do impact our health. But on a Saturday, if you're out with, you know, your aunt and they happen to get you a small Starbucks beverage, right? A sugary drink, then that's your dessert. Like that's your treat. And so it helps to promote that balance without, again, addressing calories or um, I would even say big concepts, like thinking to myself as a 15 year old, did I really care about fatty liver? Absolutely not. (laughs) Did I care about high cholesterol, my risk of having a heart attack in my forties or fifties? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. So I don't think adolescents are there yet. They don't have that capacity or understanding. You know, we, we feel invincible. Right. Um, So I think it's up to the parents to kind of guide that. So again, just, you know, what I recommend is keeping the home environment very um, healthy and then allowing and building in these treat days um, from time to time, just to help promote that normalcy and balance. Right. Well, just to sort of end things off, and um, we've talked a lot about division of responsibility, having it be a partnership with parents, you know, conveying the facts to kids and um, keeping the house free of sugar, but allowing it as a treat elsewhere. But what are three takeaway key tips for success that you would give to parents? Mm -hmm. So of course, the division of responsibility if your teen is kind of in that early preteen, you know, 13, 14 years of age kind of range, I would enforce that. Getting back to the COMPASS study that was done based on Canadian research, one of the interesting findings they have and a recommendation that came from that was encouraging teens to pack their own lunches and bring them to school because Mm -hmm. sugar-sweet beverages tended to happen off campus. And so if a child or I keep saying child, but if a teen (laughs) is still on campus, right, Right. it's, it's not impossible for them to still bring a can of Coke from home with their lunch, but it is less likely to happen. And then the quality of the food that they're eating also improves. So that was one of the take home recommendations. And I agree with that because I've seen it anecdotally teens that eat with their friends at school with packed Brown, you know, Brown bag lunches tend to eat and drink better. Mm -hmm. Um, So I definitely endorse that. And then I also tell parents to have that conversation about regulating disposable income. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways that you can allow your adolescent or your teen that social freedom to participate without being left out or feeling like they're, you know, the only ones that can't go to their friends to Tim Hortons and so forth. Um, so maybe brainstorming as a family of what is our allowance as parents for our teen? Is it about maybe restricting their debit card? Is it about only providing cash? I've had some families actually load preset gift cards to their, you know, establishment of choice for a set Mm -hmm. limit per week, and it only renews weekly. So for example, if your teen only gets $10 a week to McDonald's, you know, they may blow it all in the first day, but then the rest of the week, there's nothing. And so it kind of teaches them also a little bit of financial literacy and food literacy there. Right. So that's usually what I try um, to do with older teens. The other strategy that I like to do, I'm not sure how successful this would be coming from parents, but maybe if your teen does have access to a dietitian or, um, you know, even health discussions in class, looking at substitutes. So instead of ordering a grande caramel frappuccino with double whip, you know, extra whip, can we get a tall unsweetened latte with cinnamon or whatever the case may be. Right. And so then you're still promoting that social aspect, that independence, almost like a, what's the word for it? Like a damage control. We're just doing a bit of damage control. So I think that's the best way to look at it. 
Thank you so much for joining me today, Stefania. Thanks so much, Vanessa. It was a pleasure being here. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye now. Welcome to our first episode. This episode of the Lunch Money Podcast is called Let's Not Sugarcoat It. Um, So we're going to be talking all about sugar and children's sugar intake. So my name is Eleni. And my name is Abby. Today we're joined by our guest, a registered dietitian, who will be answering some questions that we have about children's nutrition more specifically, high added sugar intake and the negative effects that it can cause. So welcome, Emily. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me, Eleni and Abby. My name is Emily Page Mark, and I have been a dietitian since 2019, and I'm also a certified intuitive eating counselor. So I completed my undergrad and internship in Nova Scotia and worked in long-term care as a clinical consultant during the second and third waves of the COVID-19 pandemic. I also have a virtual private practice where I strive to undo the harmful impact of diet culture on eating patterns and reinforce healthful behaviors. Eleni and I work together to manage my social media and web content, and sugar, added sugar, and sugar alternatives are all very hot topics on the Explore page of Instagram, and I receive plenty of inquiries regarding the same. So I'm very, very happy to talk about such an important topic. Thank you. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I know I, I have a big sweet tooth, so... I'm always, always asking about sugar and want to know more about sugar. But um, today we're talking about children's sugar intake. So I'm sure most people know what sugar is, but what are added sugars? I know they always have crazy names on like ingredient lists. So why are they added to so many snacks and drinks and what's their purpose? Sure. So a common misconception is that sugar is sugar, but there are many different forms of it and the form impacts how it is metabolized in our bodies. So if we take glucose, for example, glucose is a monosaccharide, which means it is kind of like a building block for other forms of sugar. Glucose is our our brain's preferred source of energy and is absolutely needed in a healthy diet, but it's not the same as added sugar. So when people say sugar is sugar, what they really mean is glucose is glucose. Uh, Glucose and fructose together form sucrose or table sugar, which is a common form of added sugar. Any amount of sugar in any form that is not naturally occurring in a product would be considered an added sugar. The simple answer as to why sucrose and other sugars are added to so many products is that we as humans love it. It's delicious and it is therefore added to entice customers to buy the products. Added sugars such as high fructose corn syrup are very inexpensive and extremely sweet, making it a cheaper option for these industries to improve their profit margins. Wow, that's so interesting that there's so many different forms that sugar can take in our food um, and that some people might know the term glucose so they might just assume that glucose is all sugars but uh, that that's not the case that's really interesting Um, why are these added sugars so bad what is the difference between like a natural sugar and an added sugar and sort of what are the negative uh consequences of these? For sure. So that's a really great question, Abby. Uh, I'll use lactose for this example. So lactose is a sugar found in milk products, and it is a disaccharide, meaning it has two components. Those two components are glucose and galactose. 
So ultimately, sugars are broken down into their monosaccharides or their building blocks to be metabolized. And this is what causes our blood sugar to go up. So lactose is a great example of a naturally occurring sugar. It's part of a whole food with other nutritional components like protein and calcium. The protein in milk products slows the metabolism of glucose and galactose, causing a slower, more sustained rise in blood sugar. Fruit would be another great example of a naturally occurring sugar, and it provides nutritional components like vitamins and fiber, which has a similar effect as protein. So things like candy and pop often provides sucrose or fructose, but however, candy and pop lack that nutritional component that fruit or milk provides, uh, causing a quick rise in blood sugar and with nothing to slow down that absorption process. So we crave the energy we get when our, when our blood sugar goes up, but the faster it rises, the harder it falls and the more we crave it. When our blood sugar is constantly spiking and crashing, it causes additional stress on our bodies to, ma- to manage that sugar fluctuation. Yeah, that's super, super interesting. So you talked a little bit about like adults, but why are these types of sugars so bad for kids and what kinds of um, negative health effects can these types of sugars have on kids in the future if they consume too much of these sugars? For sure. So I want to preface with answer that the overconsumption of any food can be a bad thing. So too much fiber can cause constipation and too much protein can put additional stress on your kidneys, just to name a few. But added sugars can absolutely be part of a healthy diet. It's consuming them regularly and in larger quantities that can have lasting negative implications. So kids are very impressionable, and the greatest risk for consuming a diet that is high in added sugar at such a young age is the inability to establish healthy eating patterns for life. So first of all, added sugars take up space in the diet that could have otherwise provided more of those nutritional components I was talking about. So since kids do have smaller stomachs and high nutritional needs for their growing bodies, it may risk them not being hungry to have foods that can adequately nourish themselves as they are growing. Second, they can alter how we taste other foods. So eating or drinking things that are high in added sugar will make those with less sugar or those with naturally occurring sugars taste less sweet. This can kind of turn into a vicious cycle where one can become satisfied exclusively with very sweet foods and drinks, pushing more nutritious foods out of the diet. So like, why would a five-year-old drink water when they know what pop feels and tastes like? How can we expect them to choose an apple when Jolly Ranchers are the apple flavor they know and love? That's where that disconnect really happens in my experience. Um, And third, type two diabetes is definitely a concern. As I mentioned before, in terms of blood sugar, the faster it rises, the harder it falls. And these fluctuations strain our body's mechanism to maintain homeostasis, which is kind of like a comfort range. So we have mechanisms that protect our comfort to maintain homeostasis and keep us alive. And one of those being our insulin response. With consistent added sugar consumption, our blood sugar spikes will go higher and higher, requiring a stronger insulin response. Eventually, this mechanism gets worn out and we see insulin resistance, where the sugar can no longer be effectively removed from the bloodstream and with time, diabetes can form. So I could go on and on and on and on (laughs) for this one, but I think these are my three main reasons for how it impacts kids. Those are some pretty pretty big implications of what sugar can do for kids. And you're totally right. Why would a child choose water when they love and enjoy the taste of juice or of pop where the added sugar really draws them to those, to those products. You kind of started to discuss it a little, 
but what is it that you think causes the children, like you said, the taste of the items, uh, what causes them to eat so much added sugar in their diets? Hmm. So I have two answers actually for this one. Um, I think it has to do with the availability of added sugars on the market, but also a lack of education or transparency about what constitutes an added sugar. So kind of going back to what you were saying at the beginning, Abby. So like real cane sugar, for example, is still an added sugar, but is marketed to be healthier because it uses the word real, which I just did finger quotes. I realize you can't you can't hear that through a podcast, but that it makes it seem real or is more natural seeming to the consumer. Um, which is kind of how sugar can sneak its way in. So kombucha, for example, would be considered a health food, but some brands contain a sneakily high amount of added sugar. So I think it really does tie into that marketing piece. Um, also sugar alternatives such as maple, maple syrup or honey are also thought to be healthier alternatives to sugar, but ultimately do break down to glucose and lack those additional nutritional components that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I think honey and maple syrup, for example, like you mentioned, are always marketed to be like healthier options. People use them in baking and stuff um, as kind of substitutes, but they may not realize like how much sugar is actually in those products. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. And I know like in most of the environments at home, parents do most of the grocery shopping. So I'm sure they have a lot of impact on what the children eat as well. And those added sugar products are usually the cheaper options at grocery stores. Totally. But do you think that kids at school or parents have the biggest impact on what kids prefer to snack on? And why do you think this might be? Yeah, absolutely. So I absolutely, it has an impact um, in my dietetic internship, I was trained using the Division of Responsibility by Ellen Pratter, who is an incredible dietitian and researcher that is renowned in, in this field. Um, but the Division of Responsibility really claims that the caregiver or the parent is responsible for the what is provided and the timing of, of, that, of that being provided, whereas the child is responsible for how much they're going to eat. So therefore, if a parent is providing foods that are high in added sugar, the child will therefore obviously eat more more added sugar in their diet. So with that being said, it becomes more challenging when we look at the food environment of a school. A school is a culmination of many different backgrounds and ranges of socioeconomic status. So Eleni, exactly to your point that you just stated, it's cheaper for companies to produce foods with high added sugars um, and make more of a profit. So it really becomes a gray area on what foods should or should not be provided in the school. Um, further, I do think that schools try their best to establish an environment that provides kids with healthier alternatives, but without that proper education or transparency for those who will determine which options are approved, added sugars can still sneak their way into the environment. So, for example, I mean, when I was in high school, we switched out our vending machines for instead of having pop. We now had Gatorades and juice and like other sports drinks. So the intention was absolutely there, but those added sugars still snuck their way into the environment and ultimately raised the consumption of sugary drinks in my school, at least. Um, and I think that's really common for a lot of places. Yeah, that's that's a really good point that no matter the environment surrounding children and kind of where they're getting their food from, whether it's a school, whether it's at home, 
there's always going to be products sort of around that can entice them and make them choose some things over others. Um, do you have any ways that we'd be able to, we as a society or as in parents or educators or guardians of children, uh, that we could prevent these children from consuming too much added sugar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's important to teach kids to have a healthy relationship with food and to enjoy naturally occurring sugars and their nutritional components most often. If we even reframed that question to be how do we reasonably include added sugars in a child's healthy diet, I might be a little bit more effective because we know that kids will be consuming these foods regardless, at least to some extent, and it is essential to integrate foods like sugary drinks, chocolate, and candy into their into their lives in a way that makes them feel confident in their relation to add in their relationship to added sugars. If we don't do this, we can kind of create a pedestal for these foods to live on, making children want them more simply because they are deemed off limits. So as counter as as counterintuitive as it might sound, include added sugars regularly in moderation and include them paired with naturally occurring sugars and other nutritional components. So if you're incorporating these items into a diet that is already rich in vitamins and minerals and protein and fiber, it will help to mitigate some of those risks that I mentioned earlier. Like a fun-sized chocolate in their lunchbox paired with sandwich and a milk and the rest of their lunch is not going to harm them and it is also going to teach them that it can absolutely fit into the rest of their healthy diet. So to sum up my recommendation, I would say look at what you can add to your child's diet instead of looking at what you need to take away. Adding more nutritious foods and including them most often often will give them the best relationship to added sugars as possible. Yeah, that's a really great point. I know um, I've heard so many things about, you know, the more you restrict food, the more you want it and the more you crave it. So I think completely cutting it out isn't the best way to go about it. And everything in moderation, like like you said, a little fun size candy won't do anything if added into their lunch. So I think those are some really great tips. Thank you so much for all of this information and your input on this topic. It's been great hearing all of the information that you have and the ideas um, about how sugar affects children and how we can so sort of start to flip the script and improve their intake while also not taking anything away and making them kind of deprived of the, the foods that they that they enjoy. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me today. This was a really great conversation. I hope those of you listening learned a lot about added sugars. And yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Emily. So that was all for today's episode of the Lunch Money Podcast. We hope you join us for our next episode where we will be talking about sodium intake. And that episode will be called Why So Salty. So see you next time.